Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back on a new episode of the Parle Podcast. How's it going? I mean, in terms of what you've been listening to so far, are the subjects relevant to your work, to your projects? Don't hesitate to let me know as you can reach out to me on social media. This is one of 2023's resolutions to engage more with you, listeners. Maybe you want to give feedback, an idea on who to invite on a part. I like to think that I'm an open-minded person, so this will be an interesting stress test. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Charles Ebikeme. Charles is a global health expert, an LSE visiting fellow. We talked about different things from Niger food to what urban planning means to a health expert. How much do you know about global health issues? Of course, now with COVID, some may have had an interest in diving into the subject. Before this virus, there were and still are loads of diseases that I have personally heard of, but did not grasp the magnitude of preparation that are needed from regions, countries. Now that African nations are moving from aid to sustainable economies, it will be interesting to see how they will tackle the next global health scares. Ebola, far scarier, are all nations prepared? If you work in a public policy space, why not reach out and let me know what you think of Africa's preparedness for a real pandemic? The end of January is fast approaching and I have a question for you. Are you still focused on your resolutions or did you lose hope? Don't despair. This is still the first month. You can still make it. Thinking about when I released my first episode with Adrien, and now publishing this one, 60th episode, a vision plus execution. So here's my encouragement for you. Keep on going. As I already shared before, I aim to reach a million downloads per episode. So here's me asking for your help. Share, share, share. Power Podcast is on all the major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. Parole Podcast via Voice Studios is also on Patreon. If you want to support my podcast, find the link on the show notes. Until next time. Parole Podcast is back again, this time in English. And um, I feel like we're going to be smarter once we leave this conversation. Hopefully, we will, obviously. And uh, we're going to talk about something that I think you're the first one, Charles, to be on the pod, to be talking about health. Um, I may be sarcastic at some point. I may be really pessimistic at others and super optimistic on others. So you'll, you'll be the judge of that. And uh, before we get into the nitty gritty, can you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a great introduction, a high bar to <laughs> you won't be disappointed. Yes, I'm Charles Ebikan. I am a, a scientist, um, freelance consultant in global health, um, visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. Um, I have a background in infectious diseases, as well as sort of now a little bit more global health policy and larger policy related to health and sort of advocacy trying to get health a little bit more on the agenda in terms of how we as a society <laughs> start to think about things. So yeah, that's who I am. And anytime I sort of like tell people like I work in global health, they say, oh, it's a good time to work in global health. But uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe at least, you know, you're not queuing for a job or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny because coming from obviously an African but for me, I think there are two main things that really 
kind of define or will define the future, the bright future of Africa. One is agriculture and the other one will be health. Let me start with you. Why the health sector? That's a very good question. So I, I, I don't know exactly. When I, if I think back, science had always interested in me. I did um, my undergraduate degree um, in biochemistry. So it was just like playing biochemistry. And the way they teach it is sort of they teach you a lot about everything, but not a lot about anything. That's, so <laughs> there was, there, there was, so I learned the foundation, the fundamentals, but the application. Um, so that's why I moved in. I did a master's and PhD in infectious diseases because it felt like there was a, there was a need there. And also sort of infectious diseases for some reason always goes back to Africa for some reason, the way we, the way we sort of intellectualize it and conceptualize it is sort of Africa exists. This is where (laughs) disease lives. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so naively at the beginning, that's why sort of health, global health interested me because it was sort of an application for my sort of uh, fundamental learning and more and more you start to as you move your career through um, all these different phases um, you start to sort of realize that um, sometimes the way we do things is uh, just sort of based on just because we've always done it this way um, and how can we try and do things a little bit better and how can we try and um, give a little bit more I don't know power and agency to uh, some of the people who mm. actually doing it sort of in real life or sort of affected by it and like that. So I worked a lot in the lab, which is sort of far away from sort of dealing with the real people who sort of really have disease and sort of were affected by um, infectious diseases. But there was always, for some people who work in the lab, it's sort of you do the lab and that's what you're interested in. But for me, there was always, I always had that connection to think, actually, the reason I'm doing it is because down the down the line it actually affects real people so mm. so yeah that's a little bit about sort of why why health um from the sort of african perspective and also being so i'm not probably should have said at the beginning i'm nigerian british nigerian so that's another um <laughs> another different way to be nigerian <laughs> and a different way to be British as well so it's, it's quite so it's, it's for me as well perhaps it's a way to sort of um still have that connection with where I'm from in terms of Nigeria, Nigeria, um, and having that connection. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes in the diaspora, we we forget that we, we always have to constantly learn how to be African. It's not... So, and so I lived in France as well. So French people lived in France all their lives. Um, they have the same sort of touchstones. They have the same memories. They have... Um, and this is for English people who lived in the UK as well mm. all their lives. So if you lived in somewhere all your lives, you sort of have the same touchstones and memories and the way you think about things is different. If you lived yeah. in different places and are sort of have one foot in one country and another foot in a different country, it, it's it's hard. You have to sort of constantly, you need, you need, it needs work to, to be, to be, you need to do the work to sort of try and sort of, keep the legit legitimacy of both those parts <laughs> really it's something i'm constantly okay with and constantly trying to sort of um re uh re readapt 
Okay. Do you feel like it's a burden or just is, is it done? I'm not going to say easily because I, I don't know for you, but I speak my mother tongue and we only have one. So it's a pretty easy thing for us. But for you, will it be try to connect through food, through music, although Afrobeats now, come on, exactly. everybody's adapting on that one. Exactly. Were you adapting in the clothing style, you know, the whole thing? What, what, what is your net? Yeah? Exactly. You have to sort of choose one thing and sort of adapt <laughs> and sort of connect through that. And for me, it's always been food because even living in the UK, we, we still ate uh, Gusi, Amala. It, it's still, it's still it, so I still had that connection through food. Okay. And more and more, I sort of, I, I read a lot about, I read a lot of food blogs and food writers, and there is this sort of connection. And when you think about food, food is mainly the way we, the way food has moved globally is essentially through the movement of people so mm. it is always going to give you this connection to uh where you're from where you're going and so for me yeah it's been through food but also just trying to sort of branch out into different areas and try and connect through there um so yeah it, it's 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 not well i shouldn't say hard but you have to do the work you have to sort of mm. learn and continuously keep up to date um <laughs> Which is which is which is hard to describe to some people because who sort of been in the same place, yeah, exactly. yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a different yeah. It's a different feeling for for me. I mean, for me, I feel I, I'm not there yet to say that I'm not longer Burundian because it's been 15 years that I've been living in France. 19 years I lived in Burundi, mm. but I feel like this always this connection because obviously I have friends in. I will never say that I'm not Burundian. It will be crazy. But it's true that when you get to hear people uh, around, it'll be like, ah, but now I'm more French. Mm. I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> Maybe I reached that point. Uh, I don't know. But friends will tell me that I've changed, obviously. So Exactly, yeah. And I think sometimes, it's, and also it goes through phases. Um, and I think... Why? Right. Well, um, and particularly when you perhaps start to have kids, you'll be like, okay, I need to reconnect with my, my roots so that this doesn't find themselves adrift in the, in the sea. Um, but definitely, yeah, it, I think it goes through phases. And, and I think even when you, when you say, oh, oh, I think I went through a phase, oh, I'm perhaps no longer Nigerian because I lived in France for a long time as well. Oh, okay. But then, but then it comes back, things come back to you. It's like, oh, so I lived in France. I lived in in the 18th arrondissement in Paris. Okay. And in terms of where black people are, this is where black people are. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's back home. <laughs> exactly. So this is where I, for some reason, I, I, I don't know why I chose to live there, but for some reason, <laughs> this is where I could get plantain. This is where I could get a scotch bonnet. <laughs> this is where I could find yam. Um, so yeah. the real stuff, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. Something draws you back. So you can't really say, "Oh, I'm you in," because I needed I needed to cook plantain after a while. <laughs> I needed to have it. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one for me. I think either I go to France or you go to Belgium and Congolese people. They know how to cook, man. They do know how to cook. <laughs> so <laughs> I like the plantain. It's, it's, that's so good. But honestly, if I see your resume, I'm like, you're Nigerian because you're in the health sector. 
you know, working in different spaces. And if I'm like, because Nigerians, now I know, engineer, doctor, or something, something. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like your legitimacy as a Nigerian, they can say, oh, okay, good, good man, exactly. come here. <laughs> Every time I go to a conference, it's, there's, there's always this group of us over-educated Africans. And it's, it's always... <laughs> <laughs> so it's great and you guys are everywhere like every i think i went to saudi arabia and we were talking about a conference of global ai and i met like two doctors two nigerian oh, wow. women doctors and i'm like what are you guys doing here like oh we've been here for seven years they're like what oh, okay that's you know that's like yeah we're doing this and then learning the language here and there i'm like Good Lord, I thought Burundians were everywhere, but you guys, I mean, you guys are typical. 250 million, so you, you need to spread. At some point. Exactly. Famous for being everywhere. <laughs> All right, so what is your favorite singer then? Because now I'm getting into the Afrobeats. I have no oof. idea other than Bernard Boyer and a couple of people, obviously, but don't give me the, uh, you know, underground people. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, yeah. So my, yeah, my knowledge of Afrobeats isn't as great as I would like it to be. When, okay. I re- when I receive my Spotify wrapped every year, like, I need, to, I need to improve so I can justify being Nigerian. But yeah, Bonabar, I like, um, and there's like the, the Nigerian wedding playlist. Ah, d'accord. Okay. Yeah, so sometimes I just like go on YouTube and just put that on. Um, but specifics, I, I would have no idea about, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me, let me do this then. Next time I'm coming to London, we'll go to this... Nigerian restaurant that I read on Nast, I think. Eight oh five. I have no idea. I think it's fancier than the average because it's called Okoyi, and it's uh, like in the really nice district. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like Nigerian food. I think it's in Soho. I think I think it has a does it have a Michelin star. No, I don't know. But yeah, I, I, it's, it's oh. very. Oh, it's very. And then I need to eat Jamaican food because I had I didn't have the time to do that last time. Oh. And then go to see some. Bernard Boy will be in London next year, True, and yeah. it's not like he's paying me to say this, but you know, I want to go see him in, at Wembley because I don't want to see him in France. I want to see him exactly. with Nigerians in almost Nigeria. Nigeria, you know. Okay, health sector is you know it's great to start with this because sometimes when you start some conversation, people will be like, "Oh my goodness, this is not for me. This sounds fancy." He he's a doctor, and I'm not. I'm not a doctor as well, but I'm interesting to know. What's happening in the NGOs? Let me just start there. Like that's the sarcastic me slash pessimist me. As someone who studied, who became a policy officer, you will say, okay, I work for the UN or I work for the African Union or I work for this branch and I'm doing this. What will be your job requirements, job description in order to do whatever you were doing at a time? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I think most people who work in sort of global health have like uh, a master's in public health. And that's the foundation. My, my master's is, was a little bit specific in sort of biochemistry and molecular biology of infectious diseases. Um, but I always say that if I would could go back and do it again, I would get the master's in public health, which is like the foundation public health and you learn the basics. And then, okay. so in your career in health, most people sort of start very broad and then towards, as they advance to their career, they focus in on sort of, one specific topic or subject or theme. Um, I sort of did it in reverse. I sort of started with um, molecular biology, sort of drug development on, um, I actually worked on um, parasitic diseases, so African sleeping sickness I worked on. 
Um, so I was very, very specific right at the beginning of my career, mm. my PhD. I can tell you sort of, I study like a little amino acid in a little compartment in a, of a little parasite, which has oh big, my it was very, very like specific because um, you need to get to that sort of level of specificness to, to do drug targeting and things like that. Um, uh, and then okay. now my career is becoming a little bit broader. I work on urban health, uh, sustainable development, global health policy, things like that. So I'm a little bit now very sort of jack of all trades and very broad. Um, mm. But most people in global health do it the other way around. Um, so yeah, so if you're starting out in global health, that would be the Masters of Public Health, sort of the fundamental um, but also, okay. I, would, I would also suggest like to students, and I tell these to students at LSE, sort of find a, uh, find a passion and find a, uh, a skill set sort of like only you can do and be, mm. if it's going to be one disease, yeah, that's your disease and you're like very passionate about that. Um, or if it's just one thematic, just be um, that expert in that thing type of thing, um, which is, I think that's a good um, way to approach your career because at the end of the day, um, you don't be doing stuff where you're not sort of interested in. So you have to mm. keep keep being interested in that as well. And how about, yeah, when you, I mean, when you work there, what, what's, what will be, what was your experience? You know, as you said, urban health, I, I read urban health and I'm like, meh, <laughs> must be something in the city. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's. But I think, so I think now, what I think the, the interesting thing about health now is that health is everything now. So it's not just mm-hmm. um, infectious diseases, parasites, like cancers, diabetes. It's about where we put in um, green parks, green spaces, bike lanes. Oh, okay. These things sort of really impact health. So urban health was about, particularly working on the policy side, it was about sort of getting people work in that space, the, the scientists, the researchers work in that space and also, but also like architects and sort of civil engineers and sort of policymakers in the, at the city level to, to realize that actually your city is like an ecosystem and mm. if you don't put in like green spaces, the lungs of your city, it's going to impact um, how people live and how people really, Paris is a very good example. So when mm-hmm. was the the COP twenty one in Paris, I think it was twenty fifteen. The mayor sort of made all these promises about having much more greener city, much more sort of climate friendly city. And I thought, obviously, um, <laughs> I was in France for too long. They were like, I was like, oh, they 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 say that now, but they won't really. Sort of, um, they weren't really sort of implemented, and they won't really sort of do much. But the, but she spent the next few years sort of redeveloping the city there's like mm. now a whole whole sort of sort of along the along the river was cleared of cars it's now nice to walk and people can right. um cycle a little bit more so there's, there's and there's sort of more more green spaces and paris is not very green but there's a little mm. more. so it actually feels like a nice place to live paris now mm. things like that sort of city regeneration is sort of key to urban health because air pollution and things like that which is sort of some of the tangible effects of climate change and tangible ways we can sort of talk to people about climate change and all these things um, really impact of the day to day. So we, so for, for, for me, it's, it's about, yes, the sort of concepts, but it's also to get people to think about health in a slightly different way. Um, mm. Really we're advocates for health. We always say that health is 
an investment in people rather than sort of costing people. So when we talk about air pollution, when you talk about um, it's it's to sort of frame the issue around like, for example, climate change. Climate change is not about sort of polar bears in in the Arctic. It's really about air pollution is a climate change issue. So when you go out and you feel like the the the, the smog in the air, yeah. that's that's you want people to sort of realize and make that link to sort of climate change in the way they live their lives and also putting pressure on politicians. So it's working in health now is interesting because there are all these different ways to make the case for health and mm. different ways to sort of try and connect just every day. Health is not just going to the doctor. It's sort of every day. It's about mm-hmm. well-being. It's much, much larger. So for me, that's interesting. Yeah. Can, can I make this parallel because you spoke about Paris and it's true. I mean, the Paris I, I saw 15 years ago and the ones I saw um, three or four months ago was pretty much difficult or uh, different. And it's funny because it's coming from a socialist. <laughs> so let me start there and laugh a little bit. But if I get to see that and read that, I could be amazed, you know, but at the same time, I'm from Africa. So I'm going to do this parallel with uh, Kigali, for example, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think the president Kagame started the, the closing the streets. I, think, I may be mistaken. Let me just say at least 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. where people will go on the street, clean the, the streets if need be and do other things and just, and it's, I don't think, the country is that polluted, you know. It's, I don't think this is like a China level of mm. pollution there. And then I'll do another parallel in Asia and take Singapore. Mm. You know, clean, cut, everything is, you know, on point. Blah, blah, blah. Actually, Kigali is called, or wants to be called the Singapore of Africa. And I wonder, when we have this transformation, do I have to be, do I have to applaud those transformations because they're coming from France? Or can I say, oh, actually, it started in Paris. Before. Uh, it started in Kigali or in Singapore 20 years ago. So you guys should be learning from the other side of the world. And, you know, take notes. Applaud yourselves if need be. But just, you know, remember that other people started before you guys. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an extremely important point. Because often, particularly when you're working in sort of, quote unquote, the West, um, sort of high income countries, there's this tendency to not reinvent the wheel, but sort of um, describe the way they do things as uh, not fair, complete, but as sort of this is sort of the gold standard way of doing things. Um, when there are compl- there are really other modalities, methods, and ways to do things in different countries, different locales, different that we don't even know of because they don't turn up in peer review papers that's another discussion all in itself oh nice <laughs> but but exactly we should be we should be doing more to sort of highlight these examples from great places like Kigali um and also highlight how it was done and sort of the the mechanics of it um we can talk about because some of these places governance is looks different hmm. Rwanda yeah. might be one example in Lagos I have colleagues and friends who work with us and they, they say they say it's sort of it's sort of it, you need another skill set to, to work in these these types of places. And it's not that it's sort of it's worse or or bad or it's just different and it's just another it's just another sort of language and it's another 
people you have to engage with the, uh, the not the same people you work in Paris, you, you will have sort of associations who will go mm. report to the mayor and there's sort of, there is a sort of clear line of sight to decision. Um, in some other places, there will be a clear line of sight to decision. That's not what you think it's going to be. So mm. you have to, and this, is, and this is the value of local expertise. This is people who are working there will be able to tell you. And this is why so many sort of the, <laughs> the landscape of global health is sort of littered with dead and failed projects and program mainly because there was not this local expertise to tell you that actually this won't work but it's it's okay we'll we'll continue to take your money but it's not going to work um so it's okay yeah but certainly yeah there's 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 sort of there's a wealth of expertise in all these different places and Mm. not being sort of documented because this is just sort of they just you just do it um and researchers i think try to do a little bit more to try and document those different things. But sometimes, particularly, I think that's that's why sort of sometimes science and academia become quite limiting because sometimes the way you need to talk about these things isn't the academic way. Um, Because the academic way, you'll have to sort of Mm. try and, you'll have to fit it into this sort of box of sort of methodology. And this was, and that has to be sort of be able to be repeatable, but, Sometimes in these locations, this, this is just the way it's been done, and the lessons can be learned, but you can't sort of easily extrapolate that and just sort of take it off and put it in, down in a different city, and that's going to work. There's a lot of tacit knowledge behind that, which will not be on paper. Mm, it will come through right. people and the stakeholders, and just the way of doing business. Um, so there's a lot of that behind the scenes to think about. Because you mentioned the COP21 and I think the last one was COP26. Honestly, I re- I think I did my best to understand what the COP thing, the whole thing was about. And the last time I checked was, you guys can sign up to do this, but you're not obliged to do so. I realized like they had just wasted a month of my life because yep. <laughs> every day I was kind of following. Oh my goodness. I think like, the, the before the, 20, the 50, I can't remember the last time I was in Burundi anyway, or something like that. And I remember just thinking, what are we doing? You know, the whole we're trying to do, we're trying to teach you guys, because there's this, obviously, I can say this colonial attitude as well to tell you guys what to do, how to think, and, you know, how to think about your own soil and your own forest and everything. And it's the same attitude that I hear sometimes and I laugh about the veganism where people tell you, oh, you should be eating this because, and I'm like, uh, Burundians have been eating a lot of greens for years and years, something like three, three centuries, you know, and it's not about you, Nestle, or you, exactly. the government of this, to tell yeah. me what to do. By this, I mean, I already have that knowledge. And when I say I really have a hard time understanding how someone from somewhere in the North or in the West will tell a guy who has three or four PhDs in Lagos what to do, how to think, and then we'll go to a village in Nigeria and somewhere and tell them what to do, how to think. You spoke about the research papers because academic people are like this, they think a certain way. I don't haven't been to thousands of labs in Africa, but I assume there are some, but they don't have the same means as, I will assume, the CRS or MIT. But it's the governments, have, like, you know what I mean? Governments have to play a role there. And I wonder, like, what are you seeing? 
what is your frustration and what do you what can you share with us that you say but then again something is evolving yeah that's a good question in fact i was speaking to another nigerian the other day i was interviewing for an article and he has the same frustration he, he was he was talking about how a lot of governments we are they need to sort of the face you use put their money where their mouth is essentially so if they're going to be talking about health, they need to be ones to fund it because it's only going to be that way that the national priorities are put front and center. And there was he gave a lot of examples, like some of the sort of good examples we see actually at the, at the heart of it is foreign money, unfortunately. So in the African Union, foreign money, uh, I think it's EU funding, Africa CDC as well, uh, foreign money. Senegal, Dakar, they have an institute pasteur, mm. which is a fantastic institute, but I assume French money mm. at the heart of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and a lot, so there's a lot of foreign investment on the continent and certainly African governments need to, and it's not that, well, I don't know enough about the economics, but it's not, a, it's not that sort of African governments are poor. It's just that they need to prioritize those things and create the enabling environments for 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 things to thrive otherwise it's just going to be sort of uh another sort of repeat of the way things have been been done for the last 20 30 years which is sort of foreign investment foreign money foreign direction of resources foreign priorities um and some yeah and i mean i mean it's there were some cases where sort of the foreign um investment is done in a sort of equitable way and there's sort of but uh, but i don't think it's enough I think there needs to be much more governments really need to 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 step up and i think hmm. so for health there was the abuja declaration in i can't remember what year it was but essentially african governments signed saying they will commit i think 15 percent of their gdp to health their health systems um okay. and i think it's only rwanda that <laughs> have, have um, again rwanda sort of the shining example um <laughs> It's only one that they sort of have met that commitment. Mm. So it's really a long way. But, but, but see, the thing is, when I think about, um, uh, obviously, the country and the continent, I would think that Egypt will be at the forefront of it because they have more money or more access. Uh, I would think of Nigeria because oil money, among other things, you know. Um, I was going to say DRC, but they're going through a different, difficult time. But... I mean, there's, it's easy to say, okay, Namibia or this one or this one, Zambia. And I wonder if by, by us, different governance, different priorities, different agenda, at the end of the day, what is at the helm of everything, my understanding, is the African Union. Honestly, there's a, a friend who will come at the, on the pod uh, <laughs> this month, and my question will be again. What is the African Union for you? What, what are you seeing? Because you work with them, or maybe you work at something, some projects with them. And as a Burundian, I still don't understand. I know they're in Addis Ababa. I do know that. <laughs> as well as I know that the UN is in Geneva and New York. And sometimes, honestly, I still ask what the UN does. It's just me. You know, you could say, oh, Alex, you could hear more, learn more about it. I'm like, I've tried, but. What is the African Union for you and in the health sector as well? What, what is it giving to Africans, I guess? 
That's a big, big question. I think someone at LSE is doing their PhD on it as well. <laughs> okay. So, let, let me do that then. <laughs> I don't have the answer, but yeah, I, I mean, there are the, the well-known global players within health. And I don't think the African Union is one of them yet. Africa CDC perhaps is getting a reputation, but African Union in general, um, I'm like you, I, I do not, I haven't really engaged with them. I don't really sort of work with them. And maybe that's, and, and maybe they are a good vehicle to, 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 to do a lot of the change that we want to see. But for the moment, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, and then this is this is a question I, we keep on returning to, um, sort of in the space. The people who sort of do this policy work is sort of where where does change come from? Actually, where we work with these big institutions, UN. There's the COPS, and particularly if you're on the sort of academia research side, there's a way to do business with with them to try mm-hmm. and get that sort of scientific knowledge into the way they think about things. But at the end of the day, I think. There are other ways. I think people who work in advocacy, like the real people who work in advocacy, sort of the the quote unquote MSFs on the ground who do sort of a lot of that mm. um, advocacy work, um, and sort of with it, without because the UN and sort of all those institutions are very structured in the way they do business, so it's easy to sort of um, move through that structure. But when you don't have that structure, it's it's, a, it's incredibly difficult. And I'm really I sort of always impressed by the work they do in sort of advocating without any formal structures to move in. You just have to sort of make noise and hope people start. Mm. So, yeah, and then there's a lot of that advocacy work um, which which leads to change. It's, it's hard to sort of capture that lightning in the bottle and say, okay, let's do it again over here with this thing. So it's a lot. A friend of mine always says sort of like change takes a generation because he takes a generation, so it's not in your but the next exactly, yeah. So for the, for the next one, hopefully things will get better. Mm. So that's I think that's what we, we live in hope that's that something will, will come out of it through this all this sort of long effort and work. Yeah. And how about the the you, you spoke about the Institut Pasteur in, in Dakar, for example, and which is good. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, trash that, not at all. But how about other countries? How about their labs? How about their research centers, uh, universities? How they're thriving knowing that if you're starting, in your case, infectious disease, I mean, your playground should be somewhere in Africa or in Asia. You know, what's what's happening there? So I think, the, the, I mean, uh, there's a lot of countries who have sort of world-famous institutions. Um, okay. Nigeria has a few universities and research groups who are doing sort of stellar work. Kenya has Kenya has Kemri is quite famous. Uh, there's a lot of organizations like um, APHRC who do sort of this work in between research and policy. Um, there's a lot of shining examples on the continent in terms of the research that's going on. And often I can only speak to sort of the Nigerian example, often sometimes what holds them back is sort of the bureaucracy or, or lack of structured, it's just, it, it, it just sort of t- 
ten times more difficult to sort of do the things. For example, you you have a lab, you you, have, you you you're getting samples in from a different country. The samples need to be at sort of minus twenty, but they'll sit at customs for like three days. That type of thing. Oh, that, that type of, oh. sort of infra- infrastructure thing that sort of mm. gets in the way. Um, so there's no, there's a wealth of expertise. There's a wealth of universities are churning out, as you say, Nigerians are everywhere. Universities are churning out um, so many sort of bright and talented people. But the sort of infrastructure and sort of lack of an enabling environment perhaps lets, 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 lets them down. And again, this goes back to sort of what's the government's role and what is the government's vision and future for, you can't just sort of, and I think we've seen it in so many different countries, even sort of from the Western countries, a lot of governments are saying, oh, that's not our role. We can't do that. We can't help you. We just sort of set up um, markets and let the markets uh, sort of decide what happens. Mm. But you need, the governments need to have some sort of vision for the country and some sort of way they view um, a child born now. What is their life going to be up till death? And what are they going to they gonna have a pension? What are, what are they going to have? Um, in terms of opportunities and things like that. Um, but I don't think there is that no government, they run on sort of two, three-year cycles, five at most. Mm. So it's sort of those short timeframes which 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 impede any sort of big thinking on, on society, really. And just because you're teaching at LSE, I need to ask you this. What is the teaching process nowadays about disease about health in Africa uh, versus in the 60s or in the 50s because then again they were being taught differently differently um, and it's uh, I like to think that there is still some kind of resonance about the colonialism and the way they see the black bodies this, the way they see the other side of the world basically is this still there or you st- obviously I want to assume that you're trying to change that narrative if that narrative is still there. How how are you handling those spheres? Because, you know. Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't actually teach at LSE, but but even the way the way global health has traditionally been conceptualized has been global health. Um, previously, it was international health. Previously, it was the, the foundation of sort of tropical medicine. And even, so I did my master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So that tells you the way they, exactly. So the way they view sort of infectious diseases and these types of things. So it was something occurred in the tropics, something occurred in Africa, something that occurred to people who were sort of poorer than than this other country. So Mm. medicine, global health, has its, and a lot of people have been talking and writing about it in the past few years and even before, has its foundations in sort of this colonial aspect of a lot of the, the parasitic diseases, malaria, they were sort of discovered by, and we'll give the English a break because they were actually sort of discovered by Scottish um, explorers. So the Prince Patrick Manson or Mason, I can't remember my, my, my terrible sort of knowledge of, of history, um, a lot of the sort of early Scottish um, explorers who went off um, to 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 sort of explore the, the dark continent, they would write about sort of the locals who had sort of these different diseases and fevers and 
and obviously we know them as now as sort of African chimpanzees, malaria, and things like that. So that foundation has been in sort of this colonial regard, this colonial mm. way of looking at things, um, and it still persists today. I mean, the way, the way. So when I was at LSE, one of the projects we worked on producing reports, we would like on the front of the report, we simply like to have a, a photo that represents um, global health. And once you start to look for photos of global health, you, you realize it's sort of um, mothers with children. Um, it's sort of the aid and charity way of selling health in African countries. And it's very hard to find photos which are, which don't sort of portray that stereotype, mm-hmm. um, which don't portray the African baby with flies on on, the, on their face. That's an exaggeration, but it's it's actually quite real as well. Um, so oh it still God. persists today in the way, and it's still mm-hmm. global health is still very much a, a charity based model, very much a rich countries getting together, giving a lot of money to WHO different institutions to do work in another country, in sort of these global South countries. And how much, should I always ask the question, how much of that is steered by global South needs? How much is it? Because if you think about, in the UK, we have the NHS, we have a health system, and it's very sort of comprehensive. If you have bronchitis age five or cancer at age 55, there is one sort of, health system for you so that's it's quite Mm patient-centered in some of the countries in global south you'll have a program on hiv you have a program on tb it's very sort of disease specific um so it doesn't really is this a good way of running a health system perhaps not um it doesn't really cater to the needs and and requirements of people in the global south so it needs to be much more directed by people in the global south. And I wonder if it is it is not done on purpose. You could say, okay, because Africa, we need, uh, I don't know, things for malaria because there's not enough, blah, blah, blah. okay, we need more drugs, we need more. Blah, blah. But I wonder sometimes if this system, this financial yeah, perspective is not fruitful for the other people who are saying, hey, we have only one disease we're catering for this for this decade or for this, because as you said, NHS or EC in here in France, you know, there's Sécurité Sociale and I mean, you go to the hospital, you have a certain system, it's well done. And it could be done. It could be done back home. It could be. Yeah. I wonder if the WHO could be of help at some point. Why not? You know, and I wonder, Mm -hmm. there you go again, Alex, seeing darkness where it should (laughs) be. But then again, uh, there is a lot of money being thrown out in those systems. Uh, I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, something like two or three years ago, there was here in Lyon, I totally forgot the name. I'm trying to figure it out. But there is Macron who was in town, the Bill Gates Foundation, the whole world, the Bonos, the da-da-da-da, everybody. Yusundo was in town as well here in Lyon. And they came here for like two or three days and they were trying to raise money and I think at that time it was a record of three billion, if I'm not mistaken. And at that time I was working at a hotel that was um, welcoming some of the guests, 
And I just remember just hearing and, you know, not only the excitement of the people who were raising the funds, because, yeah, obviously it's great to, you know, to do your job well. And on the other side, seeing like um, a wealthy country saying, hey, we're giving that much, you know, and we cannot give more. As if I needed that country. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's great that you're giving away some of your excess because you're not giving in terms in times of need obviously but there was this attitude really that I realized like I was hearing two two different things and I wanted to be happy because at the end of the day that thing will be used or of need somewhere in Burundi at some point but I couldn't get excited I was like we need this this is charity all along for 60 years and you think I, I mean I'm 35 and I'm like I don't need this for 60 years. <sighs> Come on, guys. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, I, I think there is some entrenched sort of ways of viewing these things. I mean, that sort of charity and sort of, even sort of citizens in, in rich countries will, will feel, yeah, we gave money to those poor Africans type of thing. It's kind of, and it's still, and this, I mean, and lots of people have written about sort of the dehumanization of the black, the black body and, and things like that. So there's a lot of things to unpack. And, and I think going back to something you said previously, it's sort of, for me, it's fundamentally power is at the heart and the root of everything. There are certain power dynamics at play, which are very entrenched, which will, will take a lot to be, be sort of shifted and every time i talk about sort of no matter what you talk about sort of global health politics democracy the root of everything is power and the root of everything is how as human beings we seek to attain power seek to distribute power seek to um but the power is always there i always tell people to read there's a book um the purpose of power by Alicia Garza, I can't remember her name, but so I won't butcher it. Um, but she was one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And once you realize, like, at the root of everything is power, you can start to, no amount of evidence, research articles, anything you produce can, can sort of shift, well, not shift mindsets, but you need to go a little bit further to tap into that sort of power dynamic and to try and move that power dynamic. Um, so we see it in global health, the way the rich countries, COVID was a perfect, well, not perfect example, but was, was a good example of, at the end of the day, perhaps rich, country, rich countries brought up all the vaccines. They didn't share the vaccines. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes as Africans, we, we sort of, yes, that was sort of not equal way to go about things. And sort of the some of the mechanisms that were set up were almost purposefully, well, not purposefully, but because it's entrenched, it's old way of doing business is sort of purposefully done to make sure the poor countries were at the back of the line. Um, and then we're going to sort of donate money, donate vaccines to the poor countries. So it seems, it's always sort of, it's, it's sort of, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it's, it's hard to explain sort of why these things are done the way they're done, but there's power. So if you realize that there's power involved, yeah, you can say, okay, so 
that's why. So, the, so we as Africans, we need to sort of get into that power game, let's say. So what, why didn't we, well, there was a mechanism set, set up, but why didn't we, obviously, or, we, we could we could have, countries would have, would have at first sort of taken care of their own citizens. So Afri- a lot of, some blame needs to be given to African governments as well to, they needed to have done more to sort of, Mm. get involved in sort of this the power game which countries sort of put made bets in, in the way to describe it, they made bets on several different vaccine candidates and some of them didn't work um, mm. african governments were sort of i don't know they were, they were, they were, I think they were <laughs> it's almost like waiting for charity so so sometimes a lot of blame can be given yeah. to sort of colonial masters but after a while it's like we africans we need to to start taking care of their own people. And I love the fact that you talk about the COVID vaccine because it was really funny when people were talking about, you know, sharing and caring and mental health. And then that thing happened. And then out of the blue, you're like, okay, so nobody's caring for anyone. That... <laughs> but the power dynamic yeah. that you just spoke about is spot on. And because actually I love the the uh, a feedback or an answer that an Indian guy, I saw a video yesterday and it's, Interesting because I think it's one of the few guys who will be able to take to say what the rest of the world. I'm not gonna say the third world countries, but like the rest of the world will think is to say, okay, now that they need us, that power dynamic that you're talking about, now they need us for the oil. They need uh, the African continent for agricultural land. They need this. They need that. And there is war in Ukraine, so meaning they can't have electricity and they can't have food. Ah, we're stuck somewhere. For those who are willing to thrive, not those who are still looking for charity, obviously, there is a space to for negotiations, basically. You know, there is a space for for change. And I and I'm talking even about countries like Senegal that have Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, they have this weird relationship with the French colonial master F France type of thing. Where you could be like you know, guys, you know, step up, France CFA, move on. They just take something else. And, but there is this space where we can say, now we can grow. Now, for, I mean, for the sake of my children, my grandchildren, I want to see them grow and thrive, basically. You know, so that paradigm, it feels like it's changing, That whatever they call the new world order or whatever. And I wonder if Nigeria, I hope Nigeria, Nigeria slash Nigerians are riding that you know that wave and say hey now we produce our own oil we refine it back home it's now problems what's happening in china and europe what's happening in china and you know between china and this continent in the health sector obviously there's a lot of things happening on the ground that could be good or could be bad last time we talked you talk about you're writing for the Republic and, you know, getting involved in politics at some point. I'm not getting involved, but like being interested in politics. Maybe as a Burundian, I really don't know what's happening back home, but I'm interested in the international aspects of things. If you were to become, I don't know, Nigerian ambassador or envoy to blah, 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 <laughs> you know, give it. I'll give you DC or I'll give you uh, Commonwealth or D. I don't care. Just pick and choose. What will be some of the points that you would like to share? You have this diplomatic 
environment where you can say, okay, nobody's going to persecute me because we know back home. We know how it works sometimes. Although maybe not all the time. And I wonder if with your perspective, with your wealth of experience, what will you be sharing to to your government than to Africans? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. And you, you talked about sort of shifting power dynamics. And I think those power dynamics are shifting because of many different reasons, sort of geopolitical, but also simple demographics. I mean, Africa is the young continent. What is the, the median age is something ridiculous. Like, 18, 19. Every time it's like, well, that's just like, yeah. It's really, <laughs> and that, that, that's a wealth of resources. And in Nigeria, I think the unemployment rate is something ridiculous as well, like 30%. It's really, so there's, like, everyone's talking about sort of, India also has sort of like shifting demographics, a lot of young people, a lot of, and everyone talks about this sort of um, demographic dividend. And I think Africa, there's a huge demographic dividend to be, to be had. And that's a way to harness that as well. And the power, the, the power dynamics are shifting because Western countries, particularly Europe, aging population, an aging population that honestly they don't know how to, an aging population who will just keep on living and, and it's very expensive. <laughs> All people are very, very expensive. Um, and Indeed. it's sort of an aging population that Macron wants to redo the pension scheme in France the whole other <laughs> yeah. good luck with him yeah and oh yeah in the uk a lot of people are dropping out of the workforce because of um ill health in later life um so there's there's sort of this shifting demographics sort of the mm. europe obviously hasn't sort of said that uh, this out loud but it needs immigrants it needs young people it needs it needs um Otherwise, Absolutely. there's going to be different certain breaks in the way um, society is structured in Europe, um, and with money, quote unquote, running out, um, it's hard to sort of sustain all the benefits of European life um, going forward. And I wrote a piece for the Republic about we see this right. sort of quite starkly in the movement of healthcare workers. Healthcare workers are obviously overwhelmingly female, um, and a lot of European countries, a lot of global North countries, right. are doing a lot of well, not doing a lot, but quite making it, particularly since COVID, making it easy easier to attract um, foreign doctors and nurses. We can talk about sort of the ex ethics involved in sort of approaching doctors and nurses when, particularly during COVID, when you didn't really take care of your own health system. Um, and then now you want to um, replenish your your workforce with with um, doctors and nurses you didn't train um, from a different country. Um, so there there are dynamics and shifts, and there are ways to sort of optimize or take take advantage of these. And it's really important. There's an I think 18 million shortfall of nurses um, in the 18 million for the coming decade. So there's a lot of investment that needs to be made in sort of training the next generation of doctors and nurses. And some, <laughs> I was going. Some countries in Africa are doing this really well. I say <laughs> we go back to Rwanda again. Um, they have um, at the University of Global Health Equity in I think it's in Kigali have a training scheme for doctors 
Um, but what, what they do is, which is quite interesting, is your whole sort of medical training is paid for, but you sign a contract at the beginning, which states that um, at the end of your medical training, you go back and work in a public um, government-funded um, institution, sort of the public health sector, um, for at least, I think, six to nine years. So that's a way of keeping that, avoiding the brain drain and keeping that expertise within the country. And hopefully that builds up a really strong cohort of, of well-trained sort of um, medics and nurses. And I think um, Rwanda signed contracts with, I think, 13 other African countries to do the same thing. So they'll go to they go to Rwanda to get trained, and then they go back um, to their home country and, and stay in the home countries to to deliver healthcare. Um, so there are definitely some Come on. some some benefits to to sort of an Africa first perspective, and definitely we need to train much more the next the next generation of healthcare workers is sort of the utmost priority because not just this pandemic, but this isn't going to be the last mm. pandemic we see in the next decade. So something needs to be done to sort of make sure that, because there's always going to be nurses and doctors at the front line. They're the ones going to see these things the first um, and the the most sort of brutal consequences of uh, the next pandemic. So Maybe they'll create more robots to replace some of the guys, you know. You just go to the hospital and be like, ah, I know your fever is like 39. Just move there. Ah, but 18 million is a lot. It's it's a lot, man. It's crazy. So how about <laughs> I was going to say to compare, com- compare and contrast, because you have the UK, the British in you, who knows how things work there, and then you have the French um, experience. Because compare and contrast the two systems: the British, the Nigerian, and the French when it comes to work, work environment. I was going to say management or leadership. I will use management in France and leadership in other countries. That's a, that's a good distinction, actually. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. I think if we're talking stereotypes, the Nigerians are sort of always hustling. They're always, <laughs> always, always hustling. Even now, I feel... so. I've, I, coming back to UK, I felt very French. I wanted sort of a nice laid back life. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is stereotypes we're talking, so it's okay. <laughs> I love it. I mean, in terms of work balance, they, mm-hmm. they, and I don't know how they got to the stage. Obviously, they, they went on strike to get all the benefits they have now. And it's, and it's, it's fantastic. It's actually great. Um, and I know a few expats in France about how difficult it is to sort of start a business and employ oh. people. If you employ someone on sort of 2,000 um, euros a month, they actually cost the business 4,000. It's, yeah. it's actually double what you have to what? pay to the state. Um, and I always say that that's fine. If I get like sort of 40 days holiday a year, my hair <laughs> is sort of, I don't mind paying taxes. I don't mind paying more into the system if I'm going to get that out. Um, so I think my my sort of um tastes sort of really aligned with some of um the way the french think about solidarity and all these things so mm. it's kind of like yes i don't mind paying taxes the uk is slightly different people 
a lot of foreigners say it's fantastic to come to UK to work because it's sort of it's business, business, business. They mm-hmm. think about to set up business so easy. And at the same time, you realize it's because it, of that sort of lack of regulation that we have sort of these inequalities right. in society. Um, and it's, I, I, I always explain that the UK is really, has an ex- existential crisis of being sort of halfway between the US and sort of the European mindset. And mm. the policymakers and government try so hard to try and emulate the US in terms of that sort of low regulatory state, that sort of mm. the the market will solve everything. Mm, okay, okay. And, and, but I think people in the UK actually, especially now, want to see more public services, more good public services, more, mm. more, an easier life because it, it doesn't have to be that hard. And it's sort of, right. in the UK, you sort of get the worst of both mm. not having good public services, but it's a very sort of highly driven capitalist system which keeps you in the cycle you literally literally always working at the end of the month you have very little because because the person that sells coffee needs to sell coffee at an extortionate rate because he needs to pay the bill (laughs) it's just very at the end you sort of that's a good one i'm freelance now it's it's okay i can sort of work from (laughs) when i was sort of going to lsc every day Mm. going to sort of the center of london you have a coffee in the morning, go out to get lunch, even a pret, and like at the end of the day, it's like that's twenty pounds gone. It's like times that by five, times that by four. Times... Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it's, oh, wait, wait. it just sort of it finds ways to suck money out of you, and it's it's absolutely and Oof. compared to life in France, sort of <laughs> during my lunchtime, I would go to a nice restaurant, a bistro. I'll use my ticket resto, which. Which was, is paid for by my my company. There you go. So I'll have two things, <laughs> and it's it's. So there are there are different there. Are different right. It really depends on how. And at the moment, I'm trying to get the best of all. Mm. To amalgamate that somehow. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's um it's interesting. Yeah. You're welcome back to live in France and to have the two hour lunch. Yeah. That's, that's a concept that so many people don't get, but I'm like, I'm cool with that. The, the problem I had with Paris was Paris is a, it's an international city, but it wasn't international enough for some reason. It didn't feel it needs to be. Yes. I think it could have, could do more in terms of, so Absolutely. it depends on what sector you work in, but if you work in sort of global health, there were sort of one or a handful of organizations you can probably work for mm. Paris, uh, compared to sort of London, anywhere else, any or, or the mm. sort of harbors. But Paris wasn't, and at the same time, that's why I liked it because it was like, it was like a big city, but I could walk it in like 30 minutes. So it was very... Ah, okay, that goes. I mean, you walk in Paris. I don't walk in Paris. I take the bus or the train. So come to Lyon, you will see the difference. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like a village. <laughs> exactly. So these are things. Yes, yeah, wow. there are many pros. Mm. I'm trying to get the best of everything, but yeah, let's see if I succeed. <laughs> come on, no, that's pretty cool. And you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to because I don't want to be, as you said, the diaspora. Sometimes we forget that some 
maybe we have an infrastructural problem, maybe we have this problem, you know. And I wonder sometimes if I am not too pushy to, to say, okay, guys, we can do this because it's happening somewhere else. And I don't want to say it's happening in Lyon or in Paris or in London. I want to say it's happening in Lagos. It's happening in Chad. Mm-hmm. It's happening there. So we can do this. Uh, literally, Burundi and Rwanda, it's happening to the, you know, this is the neighbor. We speak kind of the same language. And mm-hmm. if we're able to do so, if they're able to do so, we're able to do so. You don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I really want to let the, the African know that we don't have to live in a charity yeah. mindset for another century. Mm. And, you know, the colonial rule or the whatever happened before, it's before. And I feel like my grandparents really fought against the colonial rule. That was my grandparents. Now I have to make sure that we are fighting for something where, you know what? You know what? If you want to have access to drugs, be it HIV, be it malaria, you can. Mm. You don't have to fly to India. You don't have to fly to China. You know, okay. if you want to go to a nice place in a university, okay, you can stay in Burundi as well as traveling in Africa and some other places. So, uh, yeah, I hope really, I really hope to understand more what the African Union and other organizations are doing in order to 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 push us, be it the diaspora and Africans, and to to better our situation. To be honest, and you know, yeah, and I think you'll find that. The, what you're looking for perhaps doesn't come from the African Union. It probably will come from sort of these, um, sort of the unrewarded, unspoken NGOs or associations or collections of people who are working at that sort of mid-level to try and foster better ways because it's it's always a sort of African governments that always let us down. And because I think Africans as people, I think there is there is so much wealth there that can be harnessed and can be pushed and yeah i, I think that's exactly for me as well it's like I'm, that's what i'm looking for where like where where can i find it where can i where can i help yeah so definitely when so when you <laughs> when you find it let me know <laughs> and hopefully this year by or the next what, what did i say like 2030, they have these numbers where like, oh, it's either the end of the world or the end of something or the beginning of something. I would like to think that there is a beginning of something great for us Africans and that we will not have to say, okay, here's an example, Rwanda. I'm like, dude, it's like 54 countries on the continent. We'll be able to at least name 20 that are doing pretty well and are like lifting others up really. You know, and yeah, I, I really like my, my, not my dream, but it's to say like, if I want to buy something in Ivory Coast, I don't have to fly. You know, the funny thing in Paris, in, in Burundi, just to talk about the uh, the colonial past that they have, is I have to go to the French embassy to apply for the uh, CFA, you know, region. Yeah. And it's crazy because I would rather <laughs> send my passport to Nairobi or Kigali or whatever, Kampala, than to just drive around and be like, oh, I have to go to the French embassy. It's, yeah. It's crazy. It's, yeah. I hope it changed, but I'm not sure. And I wonder if, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 things have to change. Anyway, uh, exactly. I'm not Senegalese, but I really hope the best for them. I know that. Yeah. Actually, there's a new president <laughs> happening, coming for a commission. Okay. Uh, it's either Kenya or Les Comores. <laughs> voilà let's see what's gonna happen it should be the Comor though 
Voilà. So, what do you want to tell the 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 person who's studying global something health um, or wants to study? You said before, like to focus on one thing, you know. But imagine the person is now in Africa or in in Europe or whatever, and they have this vision to to kind of go back and use that thing for something. What will be that advice and how they can get in touch with you if they can, if you have the time to take care of that, obviously. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I mean, people can contact me. Um, uh, I think my LSE email still works. So yeah, or yeah, I'll put that on the notes. Yeah, I used to be quite active on Twitter. I've slowed down a little bit just for my own mental health. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good. And yeah, if they, if they want to go back, I mean, that's the thing. Collaborators is is finding a pool of people that you can work with. Um, not just sort of because you want to go back, but just in general is is always mm. yeah. Um, and particularly if you're striving for the same thing, if you you want to see the same um, out the end, um, and as a good way of sort of sharing experiences, stories, and I have a good friend who lives in Paris, uh, Indian, and every time we sort of meet up we just some a lot of our talk is around sort of global health and sort of the mad world global health is um and that is good to have that's good good to because it's sort of it's sort of you don't feel alone you sort of say okay that actually happened uh, so it's not just me because you'd be sitting in a meeting and some person will say something it's like did he really just say that it, it happens all the time yeah it's not so uh, yeah having yourself a um good collaborators to to work with and to sort of um exchange ideas on it so it's a good idea i would like to come back before i let you go because <clears throat> i just realized that i wrote urban health and it stuck with me and for just uh, as an example what i'm trying to picture is for example someone like a country or a city we just say we'll call you and be like, we're working towards redesigning the city, working on different, you know, different things. Because actually, actually, it's a good example. Because Bujumbura, my understanding is that it was not called to be this. It's one million people. Oof. <laughs> yeah, they're fully packed. Let's just say that. But we're not called to be. It was another city before, royal city before. But uh, you, we would call you. We want to redesign the country, the, the city. And we will call someone like David Dajaye or Francis Kere, who are those really super renowned uh, African architect, British, and I think he's Burkinabe and German, to kind of work through the, the our history, to understand the history, you know, architecture, that's what I like, is like to go back and redesign the city in, in the sense that it makes sense to us and to the landscape. So it means that we will call you to kind of interact with Oh, mosquitoes, uh, you know, hospitals and, you know, the whole thing that um, I hope is existent or maybe somebody is working towards that. W- will that be the urban health mentality or understanding that I get for? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think so uh, uh, urban health at this scale, when you, for example, that example you gave, first thing I would say was like, yeah, bringing these architects bring in health person, bring in all the different stakeholders you can think of 
right at the beginning to 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 conceptualize what you want this city to be there is not just the way historically um the city has been created or viewed but also the current people living there now how do they want to interact with the city how do they how do yeah. they want to get from point a to point b um who are they do they is it is it um do they get up in the beginning of the day and go to work or is it infrastructure mm. sort of public transport so that's why you need to get all these people at the beginning to to conceptualize how the city is going to function and and there are there are obviously there are sort of ways and methods to do that but creating that common language right at the beginning is it's extremely important and i think that leads to to better results because then you get something where everyone has put their hand into it and everyone is more invested in the outcome um so it's not just sort of central governments the mayor of the city saying we're going to build put in this sort of um, football stadium um yeah. when there's sort of no city <laughs> type of thing so yeah <sighs> Uh, do you think like Qatar called urban uh, health people? Did they work on that? Uh, yeah. Asking yeah, for a friend. I mean, having air conditioners in all the stadiums, I don't know if that's, uh, if that's uh, sustainable. When it's yeah. hot, it's hot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So which country do you want to visit then? The next African country. I don't know how many countries you visited, but, you know, other than Burundi, obviously. And Nigeria, Burundi, Yeah, all of them. I think. Um, I've been to Uganda, Kampala. I would like to spend more time in Kenya, actually. Um, Kenyan okay. funny people. Mm -hmm. I like as in like Kenyan, <laughs> particularly on Twitter, like social media. Kenyans are fantastic. Everything I know about Kenya comes from like <laughs> social media. Uh, so I like to spend oh, more time nice. in like West Africa as well. And I mean, there are many. There's so many like, for example, Senegal and Gambia. It's it's if you look at Gambia, it's like obviously it's, it's the colonial yeah. thing again. But right, I mean, right. countries that share similar histories, but yet is now sort of very sort of slightly different. That is interesting mm. to me. So that'll be interesting for me to to explore a little bit more. And I don't know, yeah, like Egypt, Ethiopia. I mean, everywhere, like. <laughs> Mozambique, Angola, South, you take South it. Africa, they, they've had their everyone. Yeah, there's too much of South oh. Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's too, too many, too many pictures of lions and safaris yeah. and stuff. No, no, no. And what can we wish you then for the next two to three years? You know, even ten actually. Let's see. I would like to find. Well, at the same time, I mean, having this sort of diasporic lifestyle, I like. I would actually like to have some sort of roots. Mm. stability but i i don't know what form that's got. Not, that doesn't mean sort of like living in one place for the rest of life, my life but mm. just some form of okay i feel attached to this place i feel attached to this place and i can i can <laughs> i can move between the two easily and seamlessly mm. that might not happen well hopefully that happens in the next few years but yeah some sort of stability I don't know in what form that will take there you go that's great and maybe become a professor somewhere at uh you know you'll be this snobbish person yeah that's true 
because you know because <laughs> we know guys yeah. we know yeah, you exactly. <laughs> thanks a lot for your time man it's uh it's been really nice to talk and to hear about you know um i like to think that most of the time i learn it's for me and i really feel like this is like a personal project you know and i get to learn i get to get excited for some reason i get to get angry for some and i think that the previous actually the previous uh, episode was something like agricultural stuff and i got angry during the conversation i had to take it myself like i'm like alex you need to <laughs> chillax a little bit and the global health perspective as well is it's um it's not like I've been easy on you. I just wanted to know what you guys are doing. But if I were to make uh, a documentary of some sorts, there will really be something that we need to review as Africans, as governance and everything. And but we still have time. You know, the I was going, I was going to say the young, the, the the night is young, but it's not because it's been sixty years for some countries. So yeah, but hopefully you'll be playing a role in those spaces because. Obviously, we need uh, all the help that we can have. And uh, thank you for your time, obviously. Thank you so much. It's been great to chat. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>